episode of the Tennis IQ Podcast. I'm Brian Lomax. And I'm Josh Berger. Our guest today is Sean Brawley. Sean is a former top 150 world-ranked tennis professional who competed at the highest level of the game, including Wimbledon and the U.S. Open. After the tennis tour, Sean met and began working closely with Tim Galway, the author of the Inner Game series of books, including the classic, The Inner Game of Tennis. Sean is the first certified inner game coach in the world. He has facilitated numerous inner game of tennis and golf workshops in the past 20 years. In 1997, Sean helped Galway revise the tennis and golf books, and in 2008, organized the first ever inner game coaching conference. In 2012, Sean co-founded the Inner Game School of Coaching with Galway and served as the lead facilitator. As a facilitator and coach, he has custom-designed highly unique experiential programs for many well-known organizations such as GE, ITT, Union Bank, the New York Yankees, San Diego Padres, Seattle Mariners, and the USTA. Sean was the primary mental coach for the USC football team for nine years and helped Pete Carroll and the Trojans win two national championships. And this uh, this conversation is definitely one that I've been looking forward to, um, both in terms of this podcast and also on a personal level. Um, I've known Sean for uh, over the past five years, and uh, I worked with him for a summer um, in Stamford, Connecticut, and was, was really mentored um, by him and, and learned a lot from him. And I would say uh, the way that I coach today definitely um, has some to, to do with that experience. Um, and um, one drill in particular, bounce hit, um, that, that we'll definitely touch on during this conversation um, is, is one that uh, really learned from him and that I, I definitely utilize a lot um, in my coaching. So uh, I'm sure uh, everyone will really enjoy this conversation and uh, let's tune in. Hello and welcome to the Tennis IQ podcast. And we have a very special guest today. We have Sean Brawley. Well, thanks, uh, thanks for coming on the podcast today, Sean. Oh, good. Glad to be here. Awesome. Well, uh, we'll we'll jump in. Uh, I know uh, we'd love to uh, to hear about your background and your uh, your introduction to uh, to the sport of tennis. So, um, what what age did you start playing tennis, and what what got you involved in the sport? Uh, I started playing tennis when my family moved from New Orleans to Thousand Oaks, California, and we uh, lived literally three blocks away from the Thousand Oaks Racquet Club. And I made uh, a new best friend, Jimmy, and Jimmy and I went out uh, on the backcourt and uh, battled all summer. We'd come in and uh, watch Labor and Newcomb and Rosewall and and then go back out and imitate them. And we had no tennis instruction. We, I have no idea, even I have no memory of how we were playing, but I do remember my dad at the end of the summer coming out and taking a look and was absolutely astonished at how good we had gotten in about six, seven weeks. And he brought me immediately to the tennis pro and paid for a half hour tennis lesson to evaluate me. And the, the pro said, wow, this, this boy has uh, some really good eye-hand coordination. I think it would be worthwhile to, uh, to keep him, uh, to, get, you know, to, to encourage him in his tennis. But I really didn't need any encouragement. I'm the, the cliche uh, kid who grabbed the racket, and as soon as I did, I just fell in love with the sport. And uh, although I was very athletic, it, it wasn't long before I was really just wanting to play tennis all the time. 
And about what age did you begin to specialize, Sean? Like, it, I would imagine you must have played some other sports. I played all well. the I played all the sports. I mean, uh, unlike today, I played you know uh, the street sports. I mean, we played uh, football and basketball. You know, before school and during lunch, uh, after school, after my tennis, I'd come home and all the kids were out on the street playing touch football. I was playing all the time. And even when I wasn't at the club, I also was uh, hitting the ball against the, my garage when I was bored because we didn't have all the choices today for TV, you know. And uh, I, I would say, I, I mean, I, I really, in a way, specialized just because of my love for it pretty early. I mean, I really knew that tennis was my sport. And, uh, but I would say probably about 12 and, you know, at 11, 12, I was calling adults to play, uh, on my own. Like it nowadays that's unheard of, but like, I, I really was very responsible for my tennis and choosing when I had lessons and yeah, I, it just, I was driven for sure at a very young age. It's that's interesting because, you know, we've heard that story from some top performers before. So we had on Bill Tim. I'm not sure if you know him. Um, Same thing. He was not bashful about calling up adults or anybody that would want to play tennis. Um, I recently watched the documentary on Billie Jean King from uh, PBS's American Masters. Same thing. Not bashful at all about getting herself inserted to tennis programs and and so forth. Um, Was that something that was modeled for you? I mean, I know you said like doesn't happen today. Everything's sort of organized for players today, but how do you know, is that part of your personality? How, how did that develop? Wasn't, it just was, uh, it wasn't modeled in any way. It was just a natural function of absolutely wanting to play. And, um, uh, and the adults were very um, amenable and didn't mind losing to a you know, 11, 12 year old kid. Um, it was all part of the club being like a second family to me, but no, it's just, you know, I just think it's, uh, I think you hear this when, you know, in those instances, whether it's, you know, music, uh, or art or acting or, you know, something where something takes hold in an individual and they be, they just, it's, it's almost part of the blueprint and, like I was passionate about it. And so there's just a driving force to make whatever happened is supposed to happen, happen. So. So was that, um, that age, age 11, age 12, was that around the same age um, when you started uh, competing in organized tournaments as well? Uh, I played uh, my first tournaments when I was nine, uh, but suffered uh, a defeat and I didn't realize uh, that I was playing against 12 year olds because um, we didn't have a 10 and under division in uh, Southern Cal for sanctioned tournaments. There was just the 12 and under. So uh, I was pretty discouraged, but then a year later there, there were worse. There, there were some uh, unsanctioned, what they, we would call um, tennis patron tournaments in Santa Barbara, about 45 minutes from thousand Oaks. And some pretty good players there. And I went up and I ended up like winning almost every single tournament. And that suddenly gave me quite a lot of confidence. And it was from there that I, I entered uh, into some sanctioned 12 and under tournaments. But by that time, I could win some rounds. Um, I was blessed uh, 
by uh, the fact that uh, they changed the uh, the birth year and um, for eligibility. So I got an extra age. Uh, I got an extra year in the twelves. So I was I was you know ranked in the top uh, ten in the in the twelves my last year, but then that uh, that extra year it really helped me quite a bit, both both sectionally and nationally. Um, and uh, as as you continued as a as a junior player, um, what, I, what what led you um, to end up choosing uh, USC? Um, I, obviously, growing up in Southern California could have had something to do with it. But uh, can you tell us a little bit about that journey and that that process of uh, joining the team there? Yeah, sure. I um, uh, I mean the best. Mostly the best tennis schools were in California at the time. Uh, it's funny because I just spoke with a teammate of mine, Billy Nilon, uh, who played uh, number one for us, um, my, mine and his junior year. And then he got injured later in, in that season. Um, but we, we just talked about that. And uh, basically, um, I, in, you know, in terms of who had scholarships, uh, Stanford offered me full tuition. Dick Gould offered me full tuition, and I was going to go there um, because SC had uh, I'd waited to decide, and SC ran out of their scholarships. Billy Nealon and Roger Knapp both took the two scholarships available, and um, but then SC had a, 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 a player by the name of Buzz Strode from San Diego left. Uh, and um, so an, a scholarship opened up, and I decided to go there and get a full ride instead of um, just full tuition. It still was going to be a fair amount of money for my parents, and um, um, and it, you know, overall, it was a good decision. I ended up uh, playing number one my senior year. Uh, I think we lost. We were in the, ranked in the top four nationally. I think all four years that I played there. Um, and uh, so it was really good competition and just had a lot of fun and good springboard for going out on the pro tour. Yeah, and what was that transition like back then? I, and I, you know, I've known some people who've done it today, but what was it like back when you were playing? Because this is probably, what, 70s you're in college? Uh-huh. And transition to the pro tour, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, there were, it was twofold. On one hand, I, some, I somewhat knew about it because uh, during the summers of my junior, uh, my sophomore and junior year, like my sophomore year, I went to Europe and played a, a satellite and a couple of money tournaments. My junior year, I played, um, I played two different USTA satellites back to back. And did quite well. I actually was considering taking a semester off because I had I'd finished fifth on one and second on the other, and had uh, thirty points in two tournaments. So I was ranked three hundred in the world with two tournaments, and they were dividing by uh, fourteen at the time. I probably, you know, if I'd known better, if I'd known, if I'd had a crystal ball, I would have taken that fall semester off. Kept because uh, I was playing the best tennis of my life at that time. And um, and I would have continued to go and play a bunch of tournaments, which would have really teed me up for when uh, I graduated. Because when I graduated, uh, I had already traveled quite a bit, so that wasn't a problem. But I um, 
uh, man, there was a lot of pressure. I had, I had these 30 points that were going to come off in three months. And, uh, and that was a lot of points that those are back then and hard to replace those points. So basically I then really restarted over and played satellites again. And I became one of the best satellite, uh, you know, the satellite challenger players around. I basically, like I, I finished first on one. Uh, I won uh, quite a number of the satellite tournaments over the years. Um, got to the semis of several challenger tournaments, which uh, gave me an opportunity to play in the next division up, the Grand Prix. And uh, I got my highest ranking was 143 in singles and, and uh, I think 132 in doubles. Um, and what, as I guess, as you look back um, now, and we'll talk, you know, we'll talk about, um, you know, some of the the, the coaching and uh, the, the other work that you've done, you know, in, in the years past. But as, as you look back now, what are some of the, um, you know, some of your fondest, fondest moments or fondest um, takeaways from, from that experience traveling and competing against the best of the best? Um, well, number one, uh, for sure, is the uh, the camaraderie and the bonding of the guys week to week? Uh, I, I didn't realize it at the time. It was only later, once it wasn't there, that I then sought to recreate it and did so by going over to Germany to play team tennis for quite a number of years, even into senior team tennis, just because of the camaraderie, just because of the bonding of the guys. We just didn't have anything like that. Um, actually, we, I now have something like that here in New England with uh, in Fairfield County with uh, the, the club system, and we have a men's team, and it's the same thing. We get together, we practice, we drink beer, have a barbecue. It's fantastic, you know. It's just a, it's really something that's hard to replace. This this brotherhood of tennis. Uh, you know, second would be just the traveling of the different places. Tennis brought me all around the world. So I got to see the world. I got to meet quite a lot of people. Um, the Certainly the stage, you know, like being able to play in the Grand Slams and at, the, at a high level. That's always, you know, show courts and stuff like that. And, you know, I got to play against Mats Wielander and Joachim Nystrom and, uh, Peter Fleming and a number of other, you know, top ranked pros. It's all, you know, it's all very interesting. It's like when you are pursuing mastery in anything, you know, to be able to compete against the best and see how you stack up is really quite a nice opportunity. And then I would say, um, no, I'd say that's about it. That's what I can think of at the moment. You mentioned earlier, the pressure of defending points and, and things like that. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the pressures that you feel like some of the players who are on that level of the pro tour may be feeling perhaps they're different than those who are in the top 50, perhaps not, but you know, what, what did you experience when you were playing in terms of like mental pressures or different aspects of mental toughness? Well, one of the, doesn't get talked about a lot. I actually wrote an article about it when uh, for an old Southern Cal tennis magazine that I that they titled "Thrown to the Wolves." One of the tough things about the satellite is this isn't necessarily true for everyone, but like for me, I was always I 
I was special. <laughs> I mean, I was like special in my club. I was special in Southern Cal. I was special at USC. I mean, I got perks and, you know, the checks during vacations, professors let you out of, you know, homework assignments, you know, or give you an extension because I had matches. I mean, so all of a sudden you're, you go, for, I went from special to I'm a nobody. Like nobody gives a shit about me. Like really, like all they really want to just kick my ass, you know? So, um, you know, I'm playing the lowest level tournaments. And so that, that was hard. That was really hard. I mean, that's different kind of pressure, but it's like my whole world kind of suddenly changed and it toughens you up a bit. Um, so then there's the pressure of just competing when you want to win. And that, you know, that is something I certainly was used to. And, you know, by virtue of playing God knows how many matches and, you know, winning and losing, um, I happened to develop some level of, of mental toughness. And I, I actually, I think I consider myself a thinking player. I think I was a pretty good strategist out there um, for the other side of the mental game. But, it, you know, it wasn't really until I met, I got off the tour, got out of business, and I went back into coaching, into tennis as a coach. That I, And then I very quickly after that, I met Tim Galway. So it was, it was there that I, I really started a process of, um, of learning from him about the mental game and it's still continuing. I, I feel like I've as I'm diving as deep into myself and the inner game as is possible. And it's, it's yielding incredible, incredible insights and an expansion into uh, territories of consciousness that, you know, most people just don't experience. You can read about it, but I've actually been lucky enough to experience it. And not, it's not all uh, it's not all easy. I've got I've been confronted with uh, my my own deep suffering that I didn't realize was there. My own uh, some of the things that are you know like cliche like existential angst. And this might be a little too much for your podcast and the listeners, but this is what I've experienced, and it really really helps me be a better father, a better coach. Uh, and a better understander of uh, human nature. Awesome. So, I mean, I, I would like to learn learn more about, and I know, Sean, we've we've spoken in the past, but um, how yeah. that that process really started. You you mentioned after your career, yeah. getting out of business, starting to work with with Tim Galloway. Yeah. Well, and part of what I'm I'm I've learned is that you know there are there are no coincidences that there there are actual what I believe are synchronicities and there's been a few of them that have happened in my life and this one is my, really one of my first and um, I was not happy I was in business after the tour as a, a banker and commercial real estate uh, agent and just wasn't wasn't happy so I got back into tennis as a coach within about three months. I ended up meeting Tim Galway and the, the why I had met him 
was because I was I was pretty much the dominant player in the local men's tournaments in LA. I'd win most of them. But then like anybody at any time, I went into a slump and I started losing to players that I'd never lost to ever. My ego took a brutal beating because now I was off the tour. I was This is all I had for my ego boost. And uh, so losing to some really what I consider poor players um, who I'd never lost to was, was quite hard. And so I, uh, there were no tournaments for like a month in Southern Cal. So I went to a Northern Cal tournament and for the first time got the inner game book to read on the way up. And I just, I just could feel how it was shifting my mindset, just some of, just a few basic ideas. And I went and played the tournament Northern Cal. I beat the number three player at Berkeley and the number one Northern Cal player and won $1,500. And it, I just like, just like I described in, you know, when I first started tennis, I was pretty driven to try to meet Tim Galway. I just, it was like, oh my God, this was incredible. I, and I had never experienced anything like it in all the years I had played. I mean, um, and I tried every possible way. So here's the key. Here's something to remember. This is the first nugget I can offer you and the listeners is that there is a big, big difference between setting an intention and setting a goal. Because a goal is in the service of the intention. And what happened was, is I, I tried everything I knew to try to, to reach Galway, his publisher, friends, I mean, phone book, I mean, everything. And I couldn't. And I remember keeping the intention, but I stopped trying. So essentially, I stopped setting any kind of goals, but I kept the intention. And about two months later... I ran into an old friend of mine named Tony, and he was one of four guys that gave me $250 to go out on the tour. When I came back from traveling, I taught him, and then he liked it so much that I taught his kids. And when I met up with him again many years later, because uh, I had I'd not talked to him in a while, and I told him what I was interested in, we're interested in he said oh you might want to meet my cousin and in all the time that i went out on the tour he never it's not like he gave me 250 bucks in the book you know when i was teaching him he never gave me the book when i was teaching i mean i taught him his kids for at least three years never gave me the book and now he's saying oh you might want to meet my cousin now was it a distant cousin? No, they lived together in the same house. The family, lit, two families lived together in the same house in San Francisco. And so this is the first, so he, you know, he set it up. I met Tim and then Tim offered to, um, offered to mentor me. And this is where the first shift, this is where I enter the twilight zone. Because I said, oh, my God, that's so awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, when when do you want to get together? And he said, no, 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 no. You, you need to you need to think about it because once it's this is I swear to God, it's as if this is the red bill, blue pill, because he's like, because once you decide to once you, if you say yes, it'll change everything. So you have to be sure.
I, of course, I didn't think about it. I was so anxious to do it. But so I told him yes. And I said, so, you know, what are you doing Saturday? And he said, well, why? And I said, well, I don't know how to coach the inner game way. So I assume after all these years that you must have some kind of manual or perhaps you can like show me like to get me started. He said, no, 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 no. That's not how it's going to work. He said, Sean, the inner game is based upon the natural ability of people to learn. And it's been, you know, in most people, it's been atrophied because they don't use it. But what's going to happen is your students are going to teach you how to become a better coach. Everything you need to learn is going to occur on that tennis court with between you and the student. And you're going to try things and they're going to work. And then you need to notice that what's effective and you'll keep that. And then you'll try things that won't work. And that'll lead to some questions. And then you can come to me with both your success stories and your questions. And I'll coach you on that. And I uh, said, but you might want to read. I would suggest you read the first 30 pages again. Because there are a couple of examples or stories, and you, depending on your, um, on your students, you might be able to use them. When's your first lesson? I said, uh, it's tomorrow, actually. And he said, uh, well, your inner game mentorship starts tomorrow. Write down any questions and get back to me. So, and this is, this is what happened in my very first lesson the next morning. It was with a woman named Nancy. She was the wife and still is the wife of a good friend of mine. He couldn't coach her. Um, she had played maybe twice and I got her out on the court and I tossed her some balls and she hit the ball on the frame of the racket or missed it every time. And it but hit the frame about maybe three or four times and completely missed the ball six times. And I remember still to this day, literally I can reflect and remember my thing. And I thought, Oh no, what am I going to do? Because the only thing I could remember as a teacher was watch the ball. And I know that that doesn't work. I already knew that that instruction didn't work, even though everybody uses it or used it at the time. But then something shifted. It was as if I had one foot in the old way that I had been taught and I had been teaching and one foot in this new possibility. And I asked myself, a little voice said, what's going on in her mind? And so I asked her. <laughs> I said, it's a simple question. I said, Nancy, where are you hitting the ball on the racket? And she took her racket face and pointed right to the middle of the racket, like in her experience. And so there was a disconnect between perception and experience. So what I know now is that if there's a disconnect, if there's not an alignment between reality and someone's perception, you can help them clarify the reality that they perceive. Everything will change all on its own. You don't have to do anything else. And so that's what this represents. I said, oh, okay. So then I thought about it and I said, okay, so how can I actually give her an experience of hitting the ball on the string? So I went over to her side. I dropped the ball and had hit my strings, let the ball 
bounce on the ground, hit my springs back and forth, back and forth. And I said, can you do that? And she said, yeah, and she did it. And I said, what does it feel like when you hit the, the racket strings? She says, it feels like springy. And I said, okay. So I went back on the other side of the net. I started throwing balls. She did the same thing as before. She had about four balls on the frame of the racket, missed completely the other six. But when it hit the frame of the racket and I said, what did that feel like? She said, wow, that felt like a thud. I said, so that didn't feel springy. She said, no, that felt like a thud. And then I, I didn't say anything else. I just kept talking, tossing balls. And what basically transpired next was something like this. Thud. Thud, miss, miss, springy, thud, thud, springy, springy, thud, miss, thud, springy, 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 thud, springy, 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 springy. That was it. That was it. I didn't do anything. I felt like I hadn't taught, but I felt like I was like in total awe of this unbelievably natural ability of this person to learn without any necessarily you know any teaching or instruction from from me and so this this basic concept of awareness is curative is is uh dead on it's true for pretty much now i i actually there was a time when i didn't believe it was true for everything because i'd be aware and aware and aware and more aware and things wouldn't change but now I actually know that it is true that it, that if you can bring loving awareness, non-judgmental or loving awareness to anything, it changes it automatically. The witnessing of it changes it automatically. Anybody interested in quantum physics knows that the observer changes what is being observed. And so if you pay attention to something, it's the it's the first thing that you need to change something. And it's if you pay if you're fully aware when you're doing something, you can never do it the same way again. So that's how change happens. So it was an incredible first day. Um, many, 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 many other stories very similar to that of natural learning. And that's how I got started. That's a really cool story. I like that. Um, and it seemed like, even though you feel like you didn't do anything, Sean, it felt like just by having some facilitative questions, perhaps you helped her create some awareness. Is that, yes. would that yeah. be accurate? Yeah. Yeah. That's basically you, you create, you can, you can, you create awareness in a number of ways. You can direct a person's attention to awareness, to, to, to the elements that are critical. You can, you know, you can have them pay attention to where their racket is on the backswing. As an example, you can have them pay attention to the ball. I mean, the most famous uh, inner game exercise brings awareness and focus to the most important thing, which is the tennis ball. It's called bounce hit. So whether it's the ball, the body, the racket, the feet, I mean, whatever it is, awareness will facilitate basically what it facilitates. What we know now is that it, it, this is the reticular activating system at the base of the brain. It's the guardian at the gate. It's the aperture that lets in. I mean, we get 2 billion bits of information at any moment and it filters the information. 
This is why intention versus goal setting is so critical. When you set an intention, it impacts the reticular activating system. You'll pick out two, two things. One, highly relevant information, bits of information per what you're wanting, whether it's performance, learning, or enjoyment, let's say, and high quality. So for instance, if you take a player that wants to get better and you put their attention on reading the ball, their brain will suddenly, especially if they've never done exercises like this, their brain will literally wake up. The reticular activating or attention control system will open wider. And all of a sudden, all this information about the ball, about the spin, speed, direction, height, and depth, suddenly comes in that wasn't there before and uh and it your brain is so plastic that it, there's almost no end to the information it can take in and the learning it can take in and so uh like something like bounce hit or ball height over the net or lots of you know lots of different awareness instructions related to the ball or the body um, typically elicits continuous improvement. And I find personally, once I became masterful at this approach, I found that I didn't have to give very much, if any, technical instruction anymore. That by just focusing on what's critical, and that's, say, the second nugget, um, if you focus the person's attention on what's critical, um, it's this, and we know, again, we know this from neuroscience. Uh, Daniel Goleman wrote a book called Focus, The Hidden Driver of Excellence. I put it out four and a half years ago. And the research is crystal clear that focus of attention is the driver behind optimal performance, optimal learning, and even, surprising to him, uh, intimate, meaningful relationships. So, Sean, could you um, could you touch a little bit more on on bounce hit? Because I know, I mean, this is this is a technique I've you know I learned from working with you and being being mentored by you. And in, in the five years since, it's certainly something that I use a lot on court. Um, but could you explain a little bit more about the really the simplicity and the the brilliance of of the technique and the how, how it's used on the tennis court? Well, it, it's a, first of all, it's the only thing I've ever done. It, it was a, up until a certain time, the only thing that I was, that I would use that would be hundred percent successful. I've never used bounce hit unsuccessfully. Everyone can do it. And everyone who does it, who uses it typically has immediate improvement. Um, the problem is if you, over time, the way the brain works is they can start habitualizing it and then it stops being effective as an immediate improver of performance. And so it gets lost. And in what I discovered is that, and I'll tell you about the exercise in a second, but this is where I feel like I made a contribution to inner game, which is that if you take these exercises and people stop thinking about them as, as uh there's quick fixes because that's what it does. You do bounce hit and any problem just goes away like immediately. Um, but then it stops working, so to speak. But if you keep 
if you have a serious, if you have several uh, ball reading exercises and you keep uh, using different ones and, and using them over time, then you actually develop this skill. It's a skill that actually can be developed called reading the ball and the way the exercise works. And this is maybe a good opportunity on, on, on my website, seanbrawley.com. People can actually, there's actually a course. They can, there's like three free videos um, that, and one of them is the bounce hit uh, video. So anybody can sign up and get access to these three videos. There are also, uh, there's one on the wilson.com website, wdt.wilson.com. And uh, bounce hit is very simple. When the ball bounces, you say the word bounce. When the ball hits your racket, you say the word hit. And the goal is to ultimately say it on time because lots of people either don't say it at all, e either word or They'll say them early or late, depending on how they're perceiving the ball. But once they are on, in uh, accurate and saying bounce and hit on their own side and then start saying it on the other side as well, some real magic starts to happen. They, they really start losing themselves in their focus. And quite a lot of people over the years enter into the uh, what we call the flow state. And part of the reason why that's happening is because they're no longer thinking. The saying bounce hit tends to block the thinking of the left brain, puts, putting the person in, in their right brain. And in their right brain, that's where the flow state uh, starts to occur. And they start feeling things like rhythm and relaxation that they probably, some of them never felt before in tennis. And the other thing it does, we know now, is it doesn't just block the thinking. We know now from neuroscience that, uh, brain physiology, that by by focusing on the ball, that the the inherent the the act of focusing inhibits the negative emotions. So there's a simple formula. If you want to improve, say, performance, that's equal to our potential minus interference. So whatever potential we have at the moment, which can be developed over time. But right now, if you want to improve performance, that's going to be equal to whatever your skill development is right now, minus how you get in your own way. So what, what focus does is it helps a person grow in the moment, their ability to focus, and it reduces the self-talk, the self-doubt, the self-judgment, and the self, therefore the self-interference. And so you get this pretty impactful immediate improvement in performance. And that's it in a nutshell. That's the inner game in a nutshell. It's learning over and over again how to develop potential and how to reduce how we're getting in our own way. And that's true whether it's in tennis or when I've worked with the Yankees or Pete Carroll at USC or in my own life where I'm just trying to figure out how to have a happier, more meaningful life. Yeah, that's great. I mean, uh, I just love the idea of really trying to pick out that critical focus point and think that's probably one of the harder things to convince people of. Well, well, you said two things. It's one of the hardest things. You could stop there. So that's not like I was I, I have to tell you guys, I, I did this for a long time. I felt like I was a really good coach. And it wasn't until 10 years ago after I'd been coaching for quite a long time 
when I had a project, a consulting project, both here locally in New England, because that's when I moved to New England. So I was consulting with, I was going to consult with the high performance uh, coaches of a local academy. And I, at the same time, I got a consulting job with the uh, German uh, Davis Cup captain. And so I had to kind of do what I did with Pete Carroll and really help uh, really flesh out what is my philosophy. And by looking at how, like, what was the order of the exercises that I used in my inner game workshops? If a person came to me for a lesson, how would I work with them? What would I, where would I start? Why looking at the, so what's the purpose behind that? So basically it was taking what I had learned intuitively and started to try to make it conscious. And what I suddenly could not believe, and that's what's on my website, which is the five pillars. I could not believe that after all this time, I didn't realize that if you put attention on the five most important things in tennis, that everything gets better all the time until there's a block of some kind. But the, it, you do the reading the ball, it gets better. When it starts getting a little boring, you move to the footwork and balance. And then when that gets a little boring, you go to contact point and then targeting, and then you just cycle right back around. And there's this constant positive spiral of improvement. And I was like, this is amazing. Like I didn't have to do any technical instruction once I discovered that. And when I discovered that, that's I, I was coaching in other sports, but that's when I really found myself to be even more effective in other sports because I, all I had to do is identify the critical things. So I could really help much quicker than before. And it also helped me be a much better corporate coach because now I'll, I started looking out for, well, what are the most important things in this particular situation? And um, so this is... Uh, look at, I know there's a ton of noise out there. There's a ton of the five keys and the 10, this and the nine, that all I can tell you is hang on to this one. It's the driver. It is the single most important driver. Awareness is the most powerful tool we have. And it's inside every single one of us the ability to focus that awareness on something important goes back. It's the number one sutra in yoga dating 25 to 3,500 years ago. I'm telling you, everyone who's listening, this is the most important thing. If this is all you get out of the podcast today, this, I hope, would be it. So I was actually thinking about that, Sean, that like this is actually like a solution that's been around for, as you said, 25 to 3,000 years. Yet we seem to have made very little progress yeah. in terms of indoctrinating people into such things earlier and earlier in their lives. I mean, I, I would say, you know, I, I've probably come to some level of this awareness way too late in my own life. And, you know, you came to it after your tennis career. Um, how do we start doing this, helping people earlier in their lives so that this doesn't become like one of those lessons I learned a little bit later in life? I don't, 
I don't think we learned it. I mean, I had some of the best coaches in the country. They didn't ever talk to me about focus or ever. And I want to make everyone very clear. They helped me a lot. I mean, they helped me become a top 150 in the world player. Um, What I'm talking about, I believe, is the next is the evolution of our of our profession of, of of not just our profession but really everything i mean it's it's um and so it's not really about teaching people younger the problem that we have is um if we can just take a step back the biggest problem is not just in sports but in our society we are swimming in what i and others not just me of course would call the the fix-it model or the medical model. And that basic model, and what, what this means is we're walking around in this, swimming in it all the time. And that is, Brian, when your life isn't perfect, when your tennis game isn't perfect, when you're, you're not achieving what you want to achieve, it's because you're broken. Something's wrong with you something's wrong with your technique. They totally lose sight that you just might not happen to be focusing on the most important thing called the tennis ball, which is impacting and creating movement dysfunctions in you, which lead to poor technique, but they're not seeing that. They're seeing the poor technique and saying you need to change that technique. But your poor technique is almost all a function of three main things, your tracking of the ball, your footwork and balance, and your intention. Your targeting is your intention. Your tension will completely dictate all of the flow of your movement. So these things are critical, but they're not being taught. What's being taught is technical instruction, prescriptive technique and technical instructions. We're swimming in that. And this isn't just in tennis. I just spent two years in a pretty large private company and therefore <laughs> I was swimming in the same thing. Whenever something's wrong, here's the, you know, here are the things you need to do differently. You know, it's, it's everywhere. And so this idea that awareness and focus might actually be like, really important and powerful is, in my opinion, my experience is often overlooked or ignored or just not known about. And it's a, it's a shame because the, the, one of the most important things, one of the most helpful things that I discovered was I was just like everybody else. I had taught for a very short period of time and I was pretty bored already just doing the same old instructions, working with the same types of problems that I saw. And man, there wasn't a day. I mean, the whole discovery approach, guided discovery, it's always been, I mean, it's just always interesting. And I'm tapping my curiosity and I'm always in awe of what I'm seeing. So there was, there's, there was, when I coached, there's never been a dull moment at all. And I would think that that lots of that would appeal to lots of coaches. 
Um, to, to go back uh, j- just a little bit um, and, you know, w- within that learning process, and I guess whether, you know, from your experience, whether it's on within the sport of tennis or other sports or in corporate environments, um, what do you, what, and I think you touched on this a little bit already, but what would you say are some of the big, you know, the, the biggest roadblocks or the big, biggest, most common interferences um, that get in the way of that learning process? Um, so what gets in the way of what learning process just in general, anything, learning anything? Yeah. Learning anything or, you know, what, what you've referred to as that, that natural learning process of, of sort of, you know, letting, letting yeah. yourself learn so, what the body so, knows how to do. Yeah. So one of the, see, when we're kids, nobody interferes with that process. It's pretty natural. The kids have it intuitively. We, we know that, that I, I could see it in my young son when he was three and four and five and six years old um they're they're utilizing this naturally what first thing that happens and i could see this it's about uh first grade i could see the changes in the kids that i was teaching when i was a tennis director like suddenly they weren't answering the same way that five the four and five year olds were answering me they would hold their racket they wouldn't know like when i ask them you know some awareness-based question and so it's around first grade and the way we get educated and the way they're, they're, the parents start teaching them that they start shutting down this basic process. They, um, they wait for uh, cues of punishment and reward. They, I mean, you know, you've heard of the carrot and the stick. I mean, so what, hap- what starts to happen is our learning becomes uh, externally uh, based and focused. We're we're waiting to be told what to do. We're waiting to be given instruction. You can see that, you know, in, in tennis instruction, let's say today, where, you know, the kids are never really asked, well, what do you think you should be working on today? You know, it's always a set, you know, parameter to, to regardless of where the, the player is um, in, the, in, in their game. And um, so that's one, the way we're taught. And then, uh, so that's a systemic thing. And, um, and then like the medical model that I mentioned earlier. And, um, and so this is the, like, again, the systemic way. Now, you know, we also interfere, like we can interfere in that process ourselves individually. And, you know, that's well-documented in the inner game and other sort resources. Um, you know, the easiest one for anybody to, to really understand is just to listen to the voice in our head. It's, you know, for most people, it's a voice of judgment. Uh, we don't have, uh, we, we typically don't have a cheerleader up there. The voice is telling us what to do. It's uh, berating us when we've made a mistake. It's judging us. It's, uh, uh, it can be pretty, pretty brutal. Um, and uh, others call it the monkey mind. Uh, the emotions can get in the way, you know, fear, doubt, um, even anger. I've had a, worked with a number of players over the years that would end up being blocked in their growth. Even Federer, I interviewed Federer, Federer's, you know, growth, you know, took out, just really blossomed after he was able to deal with his own anger and he somehow um, in his own process uh came to realization that this was really impacting his playing. And so he worked on it. And once he got it under control, that's when he said that he won 
pretty much won Junior Wimbledon soon after that. And he was on his way. So, so you know, thoughts, emotions, feelings, they all can interfere. There's a negative, there are these negative uh, aspects of ourselves that can get in the way. And that's what, that's the battle, you know? So that's the, the battle within that everyone's trying to win. As you mentioned, monkey mind and the voice in our heads, it, it made me think about something I had seen you say in, in a, a TED talk was about meditation and mindfulness. Tell me, or tell us how you feel like that could help perhaps with some of the interference and awareness. Yeah. I mean, outside of focusing on what's critical, the, you know, in terms of developing one's focus meditation, I have found in my own experience and I've done some research and it, there's quite a lot of research now out there that supports that meditation can be for most people, but not all. Um, quite, quite helpful in many ways, that there are many benefits. So, so say for an athlete or a coach of athletes that may be listening, uh, meditating even just 10 or 20 minutes a day can act, it's pra- you're practicing focus. So if you're sitting down and you're, say, as an example, this is just one meditation you could do, <coughs> excuse me, um, if you, the typical meditation is to sit quietly and sit still and just notice your breath. And as you notice your breath in and out, you'll notice several possible things. Most likely you'll have, you'll lose focus and thoughts will come. Uh, emotions might come. You might even find that you're controlling your breath. Like without wanting to, you might find that you're actually not able to just watch yourself breathe, but you're controlling it. All of these things are pretty normal. And they happen even to the most experienced meditators. But in the beginning, it can throw people off and make them feel really bad. But, but every time you notice that you've lost focus and you come back, you're practicing focus. You're building your focus muscle. And what happens over time is none of those things I mentioned ever go away, ever. But what happens is the space between when you lose focus and when, say, as an example, a thought comes, gets bigger and bigger. And when you start resting in nothingness, something starts to change inside. What I experienced personally was... I had no idea that I, how much stress that I had had in my system, even from all of those tennis matches. All of those tennis matches I'd played all of my life. If people think that, let's say, you play hundreds of tennis matches and you're you know, anxious before the match, if you think it's gone away after the match, it's housed in your body for a long time. Trauma is housed in the body. If you've been spanked, if you've been verbally abused, as we know many tennis players have been, that's lodged in the body. The emotions are, are frozen in the body. And so the, the meditation can actually start to, you start to learn to, to deregulate your, um, or regulate your central nervous system. And so over time, all, you just become more relaxed and more calm. And what Galway says is that relaxed focus is the foundation of, 
is the mother skill. So it's this, it's, it's this combination of learning how to access this parasympathetic system, which is the relaxed system, and be alert and focused that you'll always perform at your best. Because when we do that, we're just being us. We're just being Brian. We're just being Josh. We're just being Sean. Like whenever, Brian, you can just be Brian and do whatever you're going to do, you'll always do it better than if you're stressed out. Because if you're stressed, it's likely that you're seeing this thing you're going to do as a threat. And that threat triggers old traumas, old conditioning, the sympathetic system. And now you can do what you're going to do, but it will be uh, not quite as good as if you were just being yourself. Does that make sense? Makes total sense. All right, Sean. So I know that um, through your work with Wilson, you've uh, interviewed a number, a number of the top Wilson pros like Roger Federer and Venus Williams, among others. Um, on really the inner game. Uh, can you tell us more about that and some of the insights that you found through those interviews? Yeah, I'd be happy to. It was really, it's about four years ago and it's really like a dream come true. I mean, I had always wanted to interview the, the best about the mental game. And, and uh, um, so it was a great opportunity. And both... Um, uh, both in terms of the research and then what transpired in the interviews, I was I was actually pretty blown away because uh, I discovered two patterns that I never knew before, and both of these patterns actually impacted me personally and answered a question that I had had all my life. <laughs> and that the, the two patterns that I it happened when I was um, interviewing. Um, uh, Mad, Maddie, um, Madison Keys, and um, and and I I kind of noticed this pattern in the research, and then it came up first with her, um, and and she, everybody I interviewed had what I would call a breakthrough experience. There was some event of some kind, and for everyone, it was different. But when it happened, they suddenly were absolutely infused with like almost 100% self-belief and confidence. They, they suddenly realized, oh, my God, I can do this. And just as an example, for Roger Federer, he said it was winning Junior Wimbledon. But for Gail Monfils, who won the junior uh, Australian, junior Wimbledon, and junior French, that didn't do it. He won all three, didn't do it. And uh, it was for him, it was losing in five sets to Andre Agassi when Agassi was number one in the world. And for some reason, that did it for him. And for Madison Keys, it was beating her idol, Serena Williams. She beat Serena. She got to the semis of uh, this tournament. And it opened things up for her. And uh, she suddenly was in, ranked in the top 20. She went from like 40 to 20 because she had done so well in this tournament. But then a curious thing happened. It's the second pattern. It happens, happened to most, to majority of the players, but not all of them. 
and I've done some research. It's it ha- it happens in all walks of life, in other sports, and other areas of life. And what happened was she got injured, and it was a very kind of freaky injury. She she hurt her wrist, and she was out for several weeks. Um, and when 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 she was telling me about the injury, this little voice in like birdie voice said, um, it's a gift. And I was like, what? <laughs> and I, but I've learned to follow that intuitive voice. So I said, Madison, I know this could be, and this is on the tape. You can listen to this question. It's Madison. I know this may sound like a really crazy question, but if this injury was a gift, what was the gift? You can watch her. She sits straight up. She smiles and she said, wow, it really brought me back home. It gave me time to, it was like really four things. It's the first time in my life I wasn't, I was not playing, but I had, I wasn't choosing to not play. This time gave me time to reflect on this new world that I was in. I was going to be playing bigger tournaments. I was, my contracts were changing. The money was different. My agents were different. Everything was different. And then the next two were really critical, which is it brought her home. She said, and the time off really helped me understand what was really important in my life, my friends and my family, and not all the, the extra stuff out here, but just, you know, how important the people were in my life. And then finally, it really brought me back to the simple joy of hitting a tennis ball that I hadn't felt since I first started when I was a little girl. And you see, this this whole thing, what this represents is quite literally, we're watching when this happens in athletes, we're watching, in a way, literally, their world expanding in a pretty huge way that takes them out of their comfort zone because what they all describe even the ones that handle it is a great amount of internal pressure and for some i believe the injuries are relief valves they 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 release the energy the ener- the tension is just so great that something has to happen and they're not able to t- they don't all the agents want them to do more 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 and if for those people, by the way, whether it's Sloan Stevens who wins the U.S. Open and then loses 10 times in a row first round afterwards, I mean, there, this, this is everywhere. All you got to do is look and you can see versions of this pattern. But what's important is they go from focusing externally to coming back internally home to what they can control and, and what's important to them. And so that's where they start to operate them. And some have multiple breakthroughs and breakdowns. And again, everybody has a different story, but the pattern is there. And and I found it really interesting. And I experienced that myself when I was 16. I was seated third at Kalamazoo. I I was the only person to beat Ramesh Krishna on that year, who was number one. If I had... um, and I was number one in doubles. And as soon as I got home, I tore ligaments in my ankle. And it took me several years to kind of recover 
that level of play. Has how, as you look back, as you look back at those interviews and those insights from, from, from um, interviewing, you know, some of the, the top players in the world right now, um, how has that changed um, both the work that, that you do and also um, your, your own inner work and your own um, insights? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, basically, what I really start, uh, really understood with this, with the insights was that the outer limit is our self-image. Like the most that you'll, it does not matter at all how good a person is technique-wise. It does, nothing matters except this, this like the, the limits are, will always be the self-image and the self-belief that are attached to that self-image. And so to become really aware of that, uh, you know, in in myself and others has made a huge difference in my work because there are, there are ways of working with that have opened up for me. And, and as I've learned to loosen my egoic limit and stranglehold on how I perceive my world, that is actually part of what's opened up me to have other experiences that um again that you can read about but it's you know it's rare that we have the opportunity to experience it um if you want to if you want a a relatively what would i call it a relatively layman's look at this would be michael pollan wrote a book called changing your mind and he had it's an experience on uh i think he takes multiple hallucinogens but like they're all guided and this is like this is exactly what he's discovered like what he writes about about what he discovered is kind of pretty much the same insight that that i had talking with the the, the, the pros it's that this the ego, like once it goes away or falls away, it's like, oh my God, there's so much more possible. There's so much that opens up. And it's not about getting rid of the ego. It's, it's re just recognizing that it's in service of this greater self that is inside everyone. There's a, there's, they're really, truly, it's a, it's a cliche, but, we really are truly capable of far more uh, than we realize. We're capable of experiencing far more of ourselves than we have any clue about. But um, with practice and with awareness and presence, you, you can uncover it over time. Yeah, I think that's the key is that, that practice of that. Um, I just actually recently finished... Uh, Thich Nhat Hans book, The Art of Living. Yeah. And a lot of what you're talking about, Sean, is is, is really built into into that. And it's just uh, it was a book that I decided to, I wanted to read uh, a chapter each morning and then reflect on it in my journal about what I just read. And it was really kind of a fascinating process, and it was something I actually looked forward to really doing every morning was to do that little bit of discovery. And, um, yeah. 
I don't know if I have a point there other than it's, it's, I think it's something that one has to work on and practice on and reflect on. Yeah. This is one of the three keys to mastery that is, that, that, you know, so we're, we're well-versed in this. We know deliberate practice is important, but in the other world, like I just was speaking uh, a short time ago to a group of seasoned Anthony Robbins veterans you know, of, their, of his workshops. They've attended like a number of his workshops and there's another thing called Landmark Forum. And, and I basically said, why am I here? Like why you've, you've attended all these workshops and you've done all this work over, you know, but you're here because of how it was advertised that something isn't right in your life. All this stuff and still something's not right. You know, you're not, you're not fulfilled. You know, there's some, some, something where you lack meaning. And so it's like, well, what's, so what's the key? The key is practice that like, It'd be like a tennis player going to three workshops every year and thinking that that alone was going to make them a better tennis player. People in life, they, they don't realize because they're not in sports like us. They don't actually realize. See, we get it. Like whenever I say, look, at if you want to get better at tennis and golf, you got to practice, you got to have a coach. That's the, those are the two biggest keys. You know? So in life, if you want to get better at focusing or being present with your family members, you have to practice it. That's it. And as you do, things unfold in that very natural way that I, we started the podcast. It just keeps unfolding. It just keeps unfolding. It's a really, truly remarkable process. Absolutely. And I think, I think sometimes being able to keep it simple, you know, on those most important things as, as you've talked about, you know, repeatedly rather than, um, you know, overcomplicating it or over, you know, over coaching or, you know, giving too much instruction instead fo keeping that focus on the most important thing or the most important things, the most critical, critically important things is really the way for, you know, you, you, yourself to get out of, out of your own way a little bit. And let that learning process just take place. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, anything, um, any last, I think we can start to, you know, start to wrap this up. Any, any final thoughts? Um, I, I know we'll add um, your, your TED talk as well as um, the, the um, interviews that you did with Wilson with uh, that we referenced earlier, but any, um, any last points that you'd like to make or anything else um in terms of the work that you've done that you, you'd like to, uh, to share with our listeners and viewers? Um, not that I can think of. I mean, um, you know, we've already gone pretty far over, but, um, you know, there's, you know, there's always the possibility of a story of, or two of working with the Yankees or, you know, with a SC football player, but um, like uh, you have a lot of material, so I don't know how you want to, go for how i don't know how you want to handle that i i, I think we've, we've gone through a lot if you wanted to you know end with a, a a final story of either of those i think that would be i think that would be great okay well one of my favorites because it really shows um again it, it really shows the whole inner game it shows like a, a, a an athlete who is uh already got quite a lot of potential and he ends up you know, having some struggling 
not being able to do what he knows how to do. And then in a very kind of jujitsu, mental jujitsu kind of, you know, technique, um, he's able to get, not only get back to normal, but actually even be better than that. I was working, I was called to, by Pete Carroll to come in and work with the place kicker, Ryan Colleen, who um, uh, it was his senior year and he uh, done pretty well the year before. And, uh, but he had started the season two for six and they were all within his range. They were all like 30, 35 yarders. It's not like they were 40, 45 yarders. So Pete called me up and said, you got to help him get back on track. If not, I have to replace him. I don't really like his backup. So I would really, really hope that you can help him out. So I show up and, um, and, uh, and I said, so, uh, Ryan, um, what's the problem? And he said, well, I, uh, I'm kicking the ball to the right of the field goal post pretty much every time. I said, okay, is this, is this in the game? and not in practice or is it in both? Cause as you know, you know, that would matter. You know, one might be just pressure the other, you know, but he said, no, like I, it's in practice and in the game, I set, I line it up, I do my routine and then sure as heck, I kick it to the right of the, the field goal, the field post. And so I said, so it sounds to me like, you know how to do that which is important because I never want to ask any athlete I work with to do something they can't feel they can, can't do. So you know how to do that, right? He said, well, what? <laughs> and I said, yeah. So, cause I want you to kick the ball to the right of the field goal on purpose. Can you do that? He said, well, I'm pretty sure I can. So he sets up the ball, get, does his routine, kicks the ball through the middle of the goalpost. He looks at me, he's dumbfounded. And I, in inner game, you learn to use a poker face. So I just like pretend like I don't know what that, like, you know, I'm oblivious to what's just happened. Like it's not a big deal. And I said, Brian, I thought you said you knew how to kick the ball to the right of the goalpost. And he kind of chuckled and, I said, now do it again. I, I want you to kick the ball to the right of the goalpost. He sets it up, does his routine, kicks the ball through the middle, turns to me and says, what the fuck is going on? I mean, this is outrageous. I cannot believe this. Now, what I learned, Josh, was that if I had left it there, there was a 50-50 chance he would recidivate because it fixed it in the moment, but under pressure, it might, he might actually go back to the, what I'll just call it the other synaptic pathway. So what I learned to do is actually something that uh, they do in trauma, which is called titrate. And coaches can use this when they're wanting, when there's a, when they've changed a habit and they want the player to be aware of the new habit and the old habit so that they can be more in choice. And so I then after the second one, I, I, I talked to Ryan, I looked at him and I said, now, Ryan, now I'm really serious. I mean, deadly serious. Like, like you're, I'm just letting you know that if you don't figure this out right here and right now, you're going to be replaced. I need you to figure out, focus and concentrate and kick the ball down, you know, to the right of the goalpost right now. 
like your life depended on it. He looked at me as like startled. He set it up. He kicked it to the right of the goalpost. I said, now kick it to the left of the goalpost. Kicked it to the left of the goalpost. I said, kick it to the right. He kicked it to the right. I said, kick it to the left. Now is now he had opened up the system. And then I said, now kick the ball down the middle. Then he set it up. He kicked the ball down the middle with the intention of kicking it down the middle. And he had started the season, as I said, two for six. He went 12 for 13 in the next uh, next six games, including five for five in the last game against UCLA, which if he had missed any of the field goals, they would have lost. And he made two field goals against Oklahoma, uh, which helped them beat Oklahoma for the national championships. So pretty, pretty good inner game type story, I thought. So what would you say, what would you say was the, the main interference there? What, I mean, yeah, the, the main interference is in some bizarre way, which I don't think anybody knows. It's called the yips. There's many famous, you know, Chuck Noblau of the Yankees getting paid, you know, all this money and suddenly he can't throw to first base. I worked with a Denvo Brocker wide receiver who was like one of the best wide receivers, suddenly couldn't catch a ball. You know, why does that happen? There's just some glitch. There's a yip or there's a glitch in the brain. And I think ultimately it has to do with the fear of not doing it. So like something happens, like you kick to the right and then he's afraid to not kick it to the right. And, you know, if you don't think of a pink elephant, then suddenly that's, that's the programming. And it's like, not pink elephant. There it goes to the right again. You know, it's like, I, I don't actually know what I do know that, you know, freeze them up is when I give them permission to miss. If I give them, when I give them the permission to, to do what they're afraid of doing, uh, it frees them up. Now, by the way, some, some people like a tennis player who's having trouble hitting the ball in the net, when I tell them to hit the ball into the net, some of them can do it. But then they, there's some emotional outburst. There's some crying. There's some anger. There's something that arises that actually is behind the whole thing. Once that's out in the open and dealt with, then they're fine again. So th there's all sorts of different ways in which we can get in our own way. But I think this is a colorful way <laughs> that I've experienced. I love that. I love that story. Um well, yeah, we we uh, we really appreciate your time. I think uh, I think our listeners will definitely get a lot of insights, a lot of nuggets um, from that conversation. Um, and yeah, we'd like to thank you again, Sean, for uh, coming on the Tennis IQ podcast. It's been my pleasure, and uh, it's good to be with you both. Well, that was a great conversation with our guest, Sean Brawley, and I guess one of the main takeaways that I got out of that, Josh, was just the idea of bringing your focus to just a few simple things. What, you know, what, 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 I mean, take that for wherever you think that should go. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that, that was uh, a big takeaway of mine that if you can remove some of these barriers um, during the, the teaching process or really the learning process, um, then you can, uh, let let the person um, learn in a more natural way with with their abilities um, and, and sort of let those natural abilities take over. I think um, you know 
we as uh, coaches and sports psychology professionals, and, you know, I, I think this applies to teachers and parents and anyone that really is teaching or instructing somebody, we have this, I think, tendency at times to overcoach or to try to overload somebody with information where um, really, I think this conversation shows and Sean really talks a lot about honing in on one critical point, or maybe it's a few critical points. And, you know, besides that, not doing too much in terms of technique or too much instruction and letting the person figure it out in a, in a natural way. Um, so that, that, that was probably my, my biggest takeaway to hone in on that, that most critical factor and um, let the, the, the person really take charge of that process. Um, well, that's our show to, for today. Um, once again, many thanks to Sean Brawley for joining us today on the Tennis IQ podcast. For more on today's show, please check out our show notes. Um, if you have any feedback or questions for us, please email us at tennisiqpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use the Twitter hashtag TennisIQ. And also I'll mention we do have an Instagram page, which is TennisIQ Podcast. Check that out. We generally post something for each episode. Um, so check that out and give us a follow there. Um, additionally, please subscribe to the show on your platform of choice, which includes YouTube, as well as all major podcast platforms. Um, and tell a friend if you think they uh, might enjoy our episodes. Um, thanks again, and we will see you soon for our next episode.